on. Hello, everyone, and welcome, everyone. Just to start, um, one of the reflections that I've done and part of my practice is to look around and see that um, other beings are somewhere on our journey between birth and death. That each one of us has this kind of journey that begins with birth and goes through stages of ripening and maturity and growing up and then getting older. And I'm wondering just to get a sense, just inviting you to do that too right now and extend that understanding around the room. All these people looking in our different ways. And including oneself, of course. So I'm going to ask for a little response between um, generating fear. Did anyone feel afraid? Lovely. Compassion or something, was it? Connectedness. Connectedness, anyone? Why is she asking this? <laughs> Anyone? Like, this is a little sudden. I don't want to think about this. Any, any of that? I'm sure there was. <laughs> anyway, it's a, um, it's a practice of um, including people in our mind and heart along a line that ultimately perhaps could generate compassion and could generate a sense of universality about, in a certain way about the meaning of our life or the actualities of our life that we're all included in this journey from birth to death. And as we cultivate our minds and hearts, um, the heart responds with tenderness to this kind of fact. Tenderness, maybe some urgency, maybe some sense of dropping to a different level than things that we're ordinary concerned, ordinarily concerned with. Just before I came here, I was going through my inbox, and there was an email that said, your single deepest unfulfilled desire, 30% off the shakes, 30% nutritional shake sale off. <laughs> so what was, our desi- what was the desire they're talking about? My single deepest unfulfilled, is it to be thinner? Or more vital, or what was it? I don't know. Anyway, I deleted it. <laughs> so the talk is about um, inclusion and belonging um, through the lens of Dharma and through the lens of our human heart. And in the Dharma, the sense of inclusion and connection for me has been very profound that these teachings speak to something that. Uh, felt very relieving, that felt like it went a little bit beyond my identity or my identification with problems and things like that, that they spoke to a universal aspect of human experience, but they spoke to the universal without excluding the particular, and that, that the universal is seen in a way paradoxically through the you know, paradoxically for the intellect, but not paradoxically for deeper awareness, through the particular. 
so that when mindfulness invites us to include our experience exactly as it is showing up in this moment, how that quality of inclusion can lead to kindness and wisdom um, can be an expression of deep love for ourselves and can teach us to um, manifest outwardly the same spirit of inclusion with people, beings, situations, and things that happen in the world. So to me, this quality of including in our awareness um, that which is easy and wonderful and that which is difficult and that which is indifferent um, and how that builds um, wisdom, something that works both on the inner level and the outer level. I remember just an instance of what the Buddhist sort of invitation feels like to me some years ago. I actually just um, had a visit from a member of this other sangha that I'm a member of, or I'm a friend of, and um, centered around elderly um, teacher from Tibet, ancient man, 90. And in that tradition, um, it's considered important to learn face-to-face from a teacher, not uh, some innovative Tibetan lamas will give teachings and transmissions on the web. But to get yourself into a room with someone who's actually teaching, who's embodied now, and you're embodied now, and you're like right there in front of them and listening in presence is considered like part of the teaching, and that you're not really supposed to practice particular, excuse me, practices without having um, made that kind of connection. You could say it has its downsides because, you know, it has a hierarchical piece to it and stuff. Like, it can be questioned. But on the other hand, being in the presence of somebody who's deeply uh, practiced and learning from those people really can have an effect. So I was being introduced to a prayer. This is something called the seven-line prayer, which is seven lines long, a very short. And the man is speaking in Tibetan, which is certainly not my native language, As he spoke, he was practicing the type of meditation invocation. It was an invocation of the enlightened mind. And what I felt I received in that moment was the inclusivity of self and other, like that for a moment in the presence of this person giving this prayer, that in the giving of the prayer, the inclusion of everybody's mind who was in the room and everybody's presence who was in the room. It was not only through the form of the prayer, but it was through some sense of what this person was practicing for. So I'd just like to say, you know, what are we practicing for? Like, why do we want to be wise? What is the point of becoming wiser in our life? Now, maybe just worth inquiring, like, why we're here. What brought each of us here and what brings us to meditation? I think the answer may be different for each person and we may have different answers on different days. And sometimes the answer is non, non-verbal, like you can't really say why. You, can't, you wouldn't be able to put into words what it is that draws you to the practice or you wouldn't be able to say that it's something that comes from what you, know, you might, for lack of a better word, call your ego might be a kind of silent understanding of what makes you put the effort in. So there is this 
part of our mind or our heart that's um, rather intuitive and finds expression in particulars like sitting or sitting through or coming to a place like this on a night um, coming together in peace with each other with the intention to learn something to cultivate our minds, our hearts, our bodies, um, our understanding. And it's said in the scriptures that it, um, or the Buddhist texts, that it's about reducing suffering, that that was the Buddha's motivation to suffer less. And himself at the beginning when he was an uninstructed worldling and he was very um, upset by realizing that he too would get older and get sick and die like in the... um, as I understand it, when he remembered his mind states at that time, it was just something that freaked him out as a person. But once he'd resolved his own internal dilemmas, then uh, what he had to offer was understanding for other people. Like he didn't have any more of his own dilemmas to resolve, and his practice became offering the Dharma and offering the truth of how to liberate the mind and heart, not only in words, but also by manifesting it through his presence. So in some way or other, um, that kind of image influences my practice, that why am I practicing this? Like, of course I want to feel better, kind of, or I want to feel release or renunciation, but it's also meaningful to me, like how I interact and where I'm coming from and to get to know myself better so that um, greed, hatred, and delusion don't come up and affect the way I relate to other people. Um, beings and life in general. So it's kind of, there's wisdom, the wisdom of intuition, the profound understanding that then um, infuses our intellect and becomes our orientation in life and becomes uh, the root of the way we behave. Bell Hooks says, fundamentally the practice of love, which you might say love or wisdom, begins with acceptance the recognition that wherever we are is the appropriate place to practice and the present moment is the appropriate time. But for so many of us, our longing to love and be loved or to be included or belong, let's say, has always been about a time to come, a space in the future when it will just happen, when the hungry heart will finally be fed and when we will find love. So I'm wondering, like, to what extent in, in each of us that sense of um, what we're looking for being in the future is influences our mind. Like, do we feel like we're sort of here in order to learn something that we're going to grow towards being like a better me, kind of? And to what extent are we looking in our mind and heart right now um, for what we need? Now, I'm sure that because it's the format of a Dharma talk and I'm speaking from sort of the representative of the tradition kind of that you're not as focused internally as you might be when you're just sitting alone on your cushion. But the talk exists in the receiver maybe more than the giver, like in what each of you hears as I speak. I would say that's the talk. So be attentive to those resonances and to what you might hear that makes sense and feels onward leading and what you might hear that doesn't make sense or you might not really like it or not agree with me or see that I'm making assumptions or something, that's fine. Um, See if you can take the good and leave um, what's not.
So the sense of being included and belonging seems to be really important for human beings, right? Like, do we agree that being included and part of something and a family or a community, a ethnic group, a you know, some kind of inner circle, having a secure place in the employment world. Um, my husband is an anthropologist, and I was asking him some kind of esoteric question about life and death, and he said, well, the most important thing for human beings is who's in and who's out. Like, that's what cult- how cultures define themselves is by who's in and who's out, who's a member and who isn't. And if you're on the inside, you feel good, but there's probably ways that you have to be in order to stay on the inside. And if you're on the outside, depending on which culture it is, then you get oppressed or something. Like, that happens in our society also. So I'd say that the sense of belonging and inclusion on the conditioned level is really um, filled with difficulty. Like, it might be important to say like, that we derive strength and a sense of nobility from thinking about our ancestors or our lineages or the things that our family has overcome to survive or how lucky we are to be here and things like that. But also, if you look at the outer world, how much of the misery of the outer world is made up of who gets to go through a border and who doesn't based on what they look like or what kind of motivations they're assumed to be carrying or whether they're going to take away a job from somebody or who supposedly has it, you know. Um, What does that including and excluding do to us um, as human beings? So where do we get our sense of connection and safety? Like on what level are we asking this kind of question? Our single deepest unfulfilled desire maybe? (laughs) to be completely secure. So the lineages of our family and our country and our gender and our sexual orientation and things like that can be sources of really pride and dignity and understanding of our value, but also places where we get um, tangled up, let's just say. The lineages of spirituality and Buddhism also differ You know, like a Zen person might not really respond to the instructions as they're given in this center here. And if you go in a Tibetan temple, as some of you have been in those, like they're really like rococo. They've got gold, they've got, you know, stuff is just busting out all over. There are ceremonies and chanting and incense and what, um, I don't know, do you call, no, Stephen Batchelor, bells and smells, he calls, (laughs) you know, they like those bells and smells. And to some people that means a lot and it's beautiful and uplifting and it sort of brings a sense of enchanted, extraordinary possibilities and connections and speaks about enlightenment in a sort of multi-sensory way. And to other people it just reminds them of the Catholic Church or gives them an asthma attack or something, you know. It doesn't feel like it brings you home. So if we find our home in one tradition, what do we think about how does it condition us into thinking that somehow we're more right than others? Or, you know, when you talk to someone who's practicing a different practice, do you feel a little bit like, I've got the truth, I've got the way of doing it? Or do you just know that this responds to your mind, kind of, or it works for you? It's just really interesting to hold this kind of paradox of 
what our dignity and connection is and how we might turn it into um, something toxic, something that um, isn't really in harmony with the deepest principles of Dharma. I remember growing up how excited I used to get as a little kid by all the little sights and smells and sounds and tastes of Christmas, you know, the Christian holiday. I grew up and there were going to be presents. Santa Claus was coming, you know. Um, my sisters and I would get out and like we'd f- test what was coming in the stockings and stuff like that. And it was our whole world of conditioning. And then when I grew up a little bit, I found out that like Jewish kids didn't have Christmas and they didn't like it because they felt like there's such a majority culture around Christmas and it made them feel left out, you know. And some of them would adopt something that's called now like Chrismica or something. They kind of would come into the sense of joining the dominant culture by exchanging more gifts than they normally would have. And some kind of would go around like scorning the Christmas lights and stuff like that. And I remember the younger part of myself saying, I don't know if I would have enjoyed my gifts quite so much if I'd known that everything that I was enjoying was making someone else feel excluded somehow. You know. So there, that's a question about what our inside-outside is like or what it might feel like if we have more privileges than somebody else like there's something maybe deep in our hearts that knows that um, these disparities are not not good or we can also learn that it's possible to value your own traditions but not use them to exclude other people I've just heard about in uh, in China that um, they've started to have a tradition of charity and giving things away which is really creating some cultural ruckus because communism um, used to mean that everyone is guaranteed to get enough. And so there's a lot of shame around having more than what other people have in the new capitalist culture of China. So they put these little panda bears on the streets in Shanghai where you could put stuff that you thought somebody else might be able to use. But people weren't using them for that because they were too embarrassed to show that they had extra clothes. So they became garbage cans until they opened the the panda bears are now transparent to make sure that what you put in is something that somebody else can use. There's a sort of public thing. And I was thinking, it's interesting that kind of wish to uh, help, shame around whatever privileges one might have had and trying to find a, a right path by which you can negotiate these differences for people of privilege, for people who've been in a targeted community what it feels like on the other side of that um, to discover like the value of that of your identity and untangle um, all the messages that have been internalized from the dominant culture also. So I feel that it can be a interesting part of our practice as a human being, like walking on this planet today, to try to find the balance between saying... Um, this race and this country and this life history that I've had produced me. And let me express uh, myself as I am, the fullness of that, um, taking the strength of it, but not um, getting too hung up in that historic story, the conditioned identity, as you would call it, all the distortions that come along with that. So the Dharma invites us to take a more uh, universal identity or to understand that um, 
this human nature is part of a greater nature and that liberation from all that causes suffering and division is possible if we train our minds and perceptions to see it that way. But you can't just go right away all the way to the um, sort of sameness of everybody because it doesn't necessarily work. So I'd like to read from The Way of Tenderness by Zenju Earthland Manual. It's a black and lesbian Zen practitioner. See if this is true for you. Um, Socio-political and emotional identities provide fragmented ways of looking at our lives. They're always pieced together from places where you have possession and dispossession. It is this fragmentation, I feel, that leads some to interpret Buddhist teachings as saying we must drop all identity for the sake of wholeness. What if we drop the distortions that identities bring and allow bare identities to exist? Can we establish identity in relation to nature? And can our identity as nature include all the varied forms of life in terms of race, sexuality, and gender? So just to, in your mind or with your eyes, look around and see all the forms of nature here. Like we talked about the um, trajectory of life and death, but here we are, people, two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs. Some people's bodies may function perfectly, some may not. Some people may have um, differences in terms of our bodies, but we're all natural phenomena here. How often do we really look at that level? Like I know in Zen they say um, the nose is in between the eyes. Like that's kind of dharma. That's all. It's just things are as they are. It's it's nature. So I could tell my story about fragmentation and childhood and you know the suffering of different kinds of boundaries but my story is not as important like you know each one of us probably has our story and some have more than others how can our practice be inclusive and respectful of all the differences and all that each of us has been through in order even just to get to this room One of my teachers said, when you see another person, what do you see? Do you see, like, he's a very positive thinker. He says, do you see a nice person? Or do you see a potential Buddha? Do you see um, their enlightened essence and qualities? So there is the invitation to go a little bit deeper and below the surface, which often, for me, helps to lift up the investment in the partial and um, conditioned identities. I have to say that the subject of this talk is um, something that I'm currently very much involved with and trying to work through. Like when I was coming here, I thought this talk is just kind of like it's a flow of stream of consciousness, (laughs) you know? Like um, I hope that I'm getting across something important with some Dharma points, and I know that I'm in harmony with the intention of this uh, center Cambridge Insight 
And I hope that the making a parallel between our perception of other beings, including animals, like don't we often think that animals are stupider than us, for example, but um, any kind of being, like what do we see when we're looking? And what we see when we're looking is often what we're carrying inside. And a lot of what we carry inside are things that um, don't serve us and don't serve each other. But through training our vision and training our perception, we can start to unpack these things, to counteract the habit of somehow not including each other or different experiences um, in our practice with equanimity. So as Martin Luther King said, the arc of history bends towards justice. Um, But it really helps if we engage in it. Like we have to engage in the arc of history because sometimes it seems to start bending toward justice and then snap back the other way. Um, Why is that? It's human nature. Um, David Loy, the Buddhist scholar, said, if you have a perfect system, like you have some enlightened person comes and puts in a perfect system, people will try to game the system if they're unenlightened people will just try to manipulate it to their own ends. Like you see this in the newspaper, like... But if you have a lot of enlightened people and a really oppressive system, they're suffering there also. So we need both. Like we need to work on the system and we need to work on ourselves as well. The Buddha also said that mindfulness internally of our own experience and mindfulness externally of our understanding of the experience of other people um, is really one of the keys to working with this. So we tend to think that categories like race or um, sexual orientation or different things exist kind of out there in the world as if they were really something, but they actually are things that people keep reproducing with our minds and our attitudes, and we could possibly see this very differently. There's one uh, quotation from the Buddha to one of his students who said, if you understand very deeply the nature of this body, You will never think yourself superior to anyone else. You will never think yourself inferior to anyone else. And you'll never think of yourself as equal. Which is interesting. Why not equality? Because you could lose it easily, right? It involves some kind of comparison. It's it's still in the dualistic scheme. It's equality, but it could, could go a different way. So just starting from the body, let's say, you know, there's also a lot of mental diversity to be addressed and included. I know people in this room have felt, um, I know closely people in this room who felt excluded from things because of the way their minds work, um, the way they speak, the way they think, the way they live their life. But just to talk about um, hair color and skin color and eye color, Has anyone in this room not felt afraid of people with different attributes externally? Has anyone here, like, not felt ever scared of someone who looks different? It's sad. And it probably came from how we grew up. But in our heart, we can know that that's a superficial kind of perception that it's just a conditioned perception and it can change, that we can have a habit of trying to take that apart by being present and 
maybe by looking at some of the more universal characteristics as a way of appreciating the fact that the other being is a human or a, a living creature who both suffers and has intelligence as we do. I was going to read, um, let's see, where is that clipping? I can't find it. Well, there's a place in Australia where I think it was something like 1998, people started throwing fish to the dolphins. And about three years later, the dolphins started throwing fish back to the people. I said, like, what were they thinking? (laughs) What does that mean? Or a dolphin tank where when the man comes in or the person comes and cleans the windows from the outside so people can look into the tank, there's a dolphin that gets a seagull feather and starts brushing the inside of the tank, the inside window. It's kind of like saying, hi, we're here. You know, we're here too. We see you. Do you see us? I think that's got to be what it is. Like they're trying to connect and say, like, what do you expect from us? Kind of. That's, I mean, we don't actually know what the dolphins are thinking, but you might take some clues from the way they behave. Now, the Dharma Buddhist society, the Sangha, like a space like this one, um, presents a kind of openness for the experience of each person. Like the mindfulness instruction is pretty much in a certain way one size fits all. It's like an orientation that we take to our experience and the space here tries to embody that kind of openness or to offer that to each person who participates here as best that we can. But in some way or other the um, social conditioning may filter in as well. So that's why I'm kind of giving this talk because it's a kind of external mindfulness talk. It's like, how do we relate to people outside ourselves where very often it might seem that the practice is only internal? In the time of the Buddha, there was not a great tradition of activism. And in my understanding, it's because the monarchies were very strong and the sense of any sort of small group's ability to change society at that time was not kind of wasn't really so available. But when the Buddha, who's um, wise and a great model for us, I think, constructed his own society, he took apart all of the caste systems and all of the privileges of everybody. And he cre- the, there had to be some kind of order. So it was only by the amount of time that you had spent practicing. Now, as we know, some people um, who practice a long time may not be as wise as someone from the first day, but there had to be some kind of principle, and you're not going to necessarily say, like, this person's, like, way, way wiser than you or anything. That doesn't seem a good principle. So it was in his sangha or the community of monks and nuns, it was strictly by seniority of ordination. So if um, I ordained before uh, another woman, I mean, in that thing, then um, they would have to bow to me, regardless of what caste or privilege I carried. And there's a record of this causing issues, that some of the princes did not want to bow to the shoe repair guy. But the Buddha said, you're going to have to. Like, you want to be in this group, you're just going to have to learn to bow to your senior senior monks, otherwise you can't be in it. So that was his statement of revolutionizing the way people perceived their life at that time. Also, ordaining women was a big deal. Um, That uh, was not a common kind of thing. There's a lot of study and controversy about that. But basically, the sense of capacity um, in 
the human mind to unlearn all of these structures, no matter what kind of structure you come in with. Um, that is where the Dharma really takes its stand. And we all belong in there, I hope. So in the Vinaya, um, when there were schisms or issues among people in the community, there were rules about non-harming that, um, first of all, you had to be celibate, and that's just kind of the monk and nun thing, rule number one. But there was like speaking, not speaking in ways, not harming each other, not stealing, not taking advantage of donors, um, really living the life of a practitioner, let's say, living an ethical life in the way you behaved and spoke. So in the Vinaya, the rules of the monks and nuns, it's all a case history kind of. So um, there are two, the Buddha was asked like, well, what means that somebody isn't part of our group? And he said, well, there's two things. Either they choose to go by a different path or adopt a different practice, then they're not part of our group. It's up to them to be in or not. Or the group membership or the monks and nuns have kicked them out um, because they did something wrong and they're not listening. They don't want to see that they committed an offense uh, themselves. They're not willing to atone for that offense and they're not willing to renounce their behavior or their other doctrines. So um, it's pretty all-inclusive. It's like you practice, um, and if you hurt other people by the way that you behave, you're willing to say so and have it exposed and try to make it better. You know, Try to understand why you did it, let's say, if you're a practitioner, and not do it again. And if you don't do that, then... Um, the group is able to not have you in there because you're a harmful person, so they will put you out for that reason. But it seems, you know, the basics of inclusion are something really human and really from the heart in this. I'd like to say that um, as a practitioner, I have felt that almost everywhere that I've practiced. To some degree, there is that thread in the Dharma society and the Sangha. Not perfectly. There's a lot of work being done to acknowledge like what isn't fair and how um, there's too many white teachers, for example, and we need to uh, figure out how to not just keep reproducing the structures of society that keep bubbling through because we're people and we come in here from society, so we learn stuff from society and we're here with it. So maybe there's not really an intellectual answer, like a thing that's cut and dried about uh, where to go with all of this. We live in our own uh, experience in a certain way. But please let the intuition about uh, deeper identity inform your intellect if possible. Um, and we can trust the ability of our mind to be trained to be trained in inclusion and loving kindness and in being able to value <coughs> each other a little bit beyond how we might have been taught to divide. I had a meditation group the other night and they were talking about the political candidates and some of them were saying they didn't want to wish loving kindness to certain political candidates. <laughs> and the ones who couldn't do it wanted to, but they were afraid that it felt like it was encouraging them and just making them happy with who they were. And um, we said, well, not necessarily. There's a little workaround that says, like, may you be wise and truly kind, that you might wish that for them, or may you have the joy of actual loving, understanding actual loving kindness, and 
that is a blessing that you could wish on anyone. It's almost like it could never be bad, right? You could wish that for anyone. So another question we could have for ourselves is whom do we find difficult to include in this way, in our uh, little uh, world of preferences? And how much safer would our whole world be if more of us were practicing inclusion and kindness in this way? It doesn't mean that we're um, not ultimately in some way um, both connected and alone. Like we exist both in community and in some kind of sacred solitude. So there is the attending to do that we uh, like to do inwardly and need to do. And this internal uh, attending is something that is also for the good of the other. It's Again, it's one of those things that is... Um, like the Zen koan, it's both. The attending that we do inside enhances and supports the kind of attending and activity we might do outside. So, it's an attention that is infused by a quality of right view or right attention, which is that none of the um, superficial identities really cover it. Like, there's some level on which n- none of us has a name. We like we don't, you know. You could say like, what happens to your mind when you say, "I don't have a name"? Like, you stop identifying with all of those things. We don't have to be from that place of not having a name. We don't have to be for or against any of our experiences or for or against any people. We don't have to banish certain ways of thinking, but we have to understand what the nature of thinking is. Back to, um, if you understand the real nature of this body, you'll never be better or worse than another. If you understand the real nature of thinking, you can tell the difference between the thoughts that you want to act on and make real and the ones that you don't want to influence you. Like, we think that our thoughts are created by me, right? It feels like I am thinking. But it's possible to view them as just a kind of impersonal phenomenon that comes and goes, which, when you come to that understanding, gives you a lot more choice about which thoughts you allow to, like, recondition your mind and which ones you find, you know, they might even feel very shameful that you're thinking this, but actually it's not your fault, you know. You probably came by it honestly in some way. So I'd like to close with a a simple poem by um, the poet Stephen Dunn, which is a white guy, Um, How to Be Happy, uh, another memo to myself, he writes, So you start with your own body. It's almost like a meditation poem. You start with your own body and move outward, but don't go too far. Never try to please a whole city, for example. Nor will the easy intimacy of small towns ever satisfy your needs. The need that you've whispered only into the dark. Connecting with another person is a beginning They don't need to be pretty. 
but they have to know how to make their own ceilings out of what's beautiful in them. Together you must love to exchange gifts in the night and agree that you don't need ribbons on those packages. It's just the fine violence of breaking out of yourselves. No matter, it's doubtful that that other person will be enough for you either, or you for them. You have to have friends of all genders. When you get together, you must feel everyone has brought their fierce privacy with them and may be ready to share it. Prepare yourself, though, to keep something back. There's a center in you. You're simply a comedian without it. Beyond this, it's advisable to have a skill. Learn how to make something, food, a shoebox, or a good day. Remember, finally, there are a few pleasures that aren't as local as your fingertips. Never go to Europe for the cathedrals. In a big group, create a corner in the middle of the room. So thank you for listening to the um, talk. And forgive me if I made any assumptions or anything difficult for anyone by the way that I spoke. Um, you're welcome to um, work on it here with me, I guess. Um, also, the time is for the collective to speak from your wisdom or your heart or a question, anything. Um, include and exclude. Um, And I was wondering if you could reflect on the role of empathy in navigating Mm -hmm. those inclusions and exclusions. Um, You know, from your other story as well about uh, the Buddha, it's clear that it's not, neither is always good or bad. Um, And so there seems like there's something that sort of provides guidance on the tipping point, so to speak. Um, And and I was curious if empathy is is one Mm -hmm. of those things. Are you saying that exclusion is sometimes good? Is that kind of what is that was that part or of what you said? Not necessarily. I, it just is. I mean, right. it's just um, you know. Right. I, I, even if you place no value on it, it it has a place sometimes. Right. Yeah, like if um, you have a consistent problem with somebody and it just doesn't work out, then you take a step away from them. It doesn't. You don't go to dinner with them all the time or something. So that. Space allows your own dignity to come back. Like, you know, you say, like, all right, this isn't working for me. I'm, I'm going to take a break here or something. Like, they aren't going to, we can't be as close anymore. And that might be someone who was theoretically very close to you, a sister or a brother or something like that. That on the outer level, you might feel close, but the internal level of meaning, you don't find the connection or the ability to really get the empathy back, almost, you could say. So, um, I think that's kind of a two-way street, that empathy, like in terms of relationship. But as far as, ex- you know, the, f- the sense of being excluded, like to speak as a uh, person of privilege or a white person that 
whatever experiences of exclusion and discomfort I've had, I try to understand and multiply a little bit for people who are in a targeted group, like what might that feel like? You know, I've had things as a woman that are harder than I think they would be for a man, so in order to have empathy, I try to have that understanding, but I also try to just uh, make actual connections with people and hear where they're, where they're at, um, to listen, to see what other, another person's experience is, and not just sort of lay my own version of empathy on them. There's an interesting distinction being drawn between um, empathy and altruism, which I like, which is to act um, to benefit another, like without that self-interest and maybe not necessarily projecting your own experience on them, but um, trying to be of benefit in whatever way you have to use your intelligence for. It's a big question. You didn't put any specifics in it. No, so. It's pretty intentionally vague, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Did that go anywhere for you? Um, it's, it's interesting um, to, to hear um, the reticence um, about your own identity. Uh, as you reflect on that, um, and I would encourage you to, to it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. So for you, like, sometimes I like to say, like, maybe you have some kind of a, an answer yourself to your own question. Like, what, what do you do in the situation that sounds like you have a sort of an edge or somewhere where you're trying to work something out? What's your current... Okay. Um, Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, is that okay? Um, yeah. So I'm, I've been um, ethnically and uh, gender. I mean, I've been. I felt included by almost everyone, of any every kind of person. I felt excluded very mm-hmm. vehemently by almost every race of person, um, and sometimes in the same day in the same room, right. um, by people who know each other. Um, and the one thing I found was um, was that it never it never paid in any way internally to hold on to the pain of the exclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it always helped to try to understand why someone would feel compelled to, to behave mm-hmm. in that way. Um, right. And, you know, like the, the, the guy who called me the N-word as a bully in seventh grade is now a Facebook friend, and he has kids, and he says, happy birthday to my kids. And, you mm-hmm. know, that feels, that feels rewarding. Um, right. So it's establishing some kind of connection with the other aspects of the person. I'm sorry that you had that experience, though, i got to say. But that feels um, empowering to you to do that. Yeah. Thank you. I think I'll leave that one. It sounds good. thinking about this idea of the non-separate self as a kind of um, answer or path or something like that. Um, And I'm wondering how you think about almost like what are the what are the baby steps of practicing that? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we you know there are other traditions other than u s tradition, <laughs> which is so much one of individualism right. and 
separate self. And then sometimes my own beginnings around Buddhism were the sense of like no self. That was kind of hard for me because I felt like there were ways in which I needed to cultivate some health, some sense of self. But then I hear about other traditions, whether it's the African tradition of Ubuntu or having you be here named Lila, thinking about the uh, Lila Watson from Australia who has that quote about, if you've come to help me, go home. But if you've come because you somehow see that our lives are intimately connected with one another um, in this kind of common struggle, then you're most welcome. And so I'm just interested from how you've been talking about inclusion and exclusion. Um, It kind of goes beyond some of the ideas about allies or things like that, that you know, we've done around white anti-racism, but around this sense of non-separate self. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering about your own thoughts on how the practice um, takes on that kind of relationality. Well, um, in conversation with anyone to really look at them and feel them no matter who you're talking to I think is a it's almost like a meta practice so when you meet all arrays of people feel that process of reflection like the reflection on death uh, can bring that universal sense um, and a kind of gateway to uh, nature and all the separate identities that we're going to have to let go of like if they're that conditional that we let go of them when we die what do they mean now like it kind of you know, there's a reverse flow that comes up into the moment out of those reflections of something that, you know, we'll, we know we'll, that will happen in the future. So what, is, what are we letting go of when we die? Like, what is all that? What would it be to go to the place where I am not? You know, which is, we assume death is like that, but what effect would it have on your mind to do that? Also, you know, there are tremendous trainings um, of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity, which are... Um, very well-built Buddhist technologies, you could say, for extending your attention to different beings and holding them in mind and then holding them in kindness and understanding. And I, you know, my experience of those practices is that um, there is a sense of connection that comes from that. Um, There are reflections like that everything that um, we think we are came to us from somewhere else, like our self is composed of non-self elements and we appear like and our mind likes to unify everything in one perception and get it sort of like, okay, now this is, I know what I am or I know what this is and how partial that is. It's a kind of like um, convenience so that we don't have to think through everything over and over again, but just the practice of awareness of what conditions actually are. So studying uh, dependent origination, for example, is a good one for that. Um, I like that you have that motivation to understand the uh, um, the actual nature of what the self concept is. You know, the, it's only with a self concept that we get the other kind of thing. So, if you deconstruct the self, the other will also disappear. So, good job. I think. <laughs> yeah.
I, I forget exactly what was said earlier, but it was something about like thinking about how to create more inclusive structures or something of that that nature. Um, and I can't help but wonder if if maybe like the thinking part might be might be the problem, right? <laughs> that um, you know, I, I, I think about the experience I have when I'm with my close family and are particularly you know relaxed. You know, if it's like the holidays or whatever, or if I'm with my nephew. There is that sort of sense of safety and inclusion and warmth. So, you know, for for these three right. days, like nothing awful is going to happen, right? right. Um, which is which is very comforting, and I, you know, I think is is probably what a lot of us are hoping to to experience at at some point. Um, right. What is home? A feeling of home. And, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's not um, a bad thing. Uh, and, and you know, our our experience out in the world is is usually very different. Um, I, you know, particularly in the Northeast, where where there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of hustling, and there's a lot of there's a lot to be gained by doing well, and there's a lot to be lost by not doing well in mm-hmm. in our competitive environment. Um, and so, you know, I can't help but wonder if if you know if there's room for us just to experience that sort of sense of uh, experiencing the, the 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 warmth and the company of somebody else. Right. And also, if, if I mean, there is a place for competition, you know, I'm 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 in academia, which is actually very competitive, and and I kind of wish there weren't. But also, I want to know that what I'm reading and what I'm learning is is true, and that there's some quality control. Some people can, can just do it better than other people. Right. And right. I want to make sure that people who do it well are doing it, and that people who aren't doing it well are, are not doing it or doing something else. Um, but but you know, there's there's a certain permanence or cutthroatness to it right now. Hmm that I think might give us that sort of sinking feeling of I've failed at this somewhat arbitrary task and now I'm done. And, and um, that can be a reality in the structure of our society. And so you know, I do wonder if maybe there's a place to think about how do we create room to, um, if we can't contribute in the way we originally want, you know, if we fight, we lose. Is there a way to stand back up and, and, and win either in that domain by learning a lesson or learning a different lesson? And maybe allowing some element of, of inclusion to coexist with the competition in ways that they're both sort of right. balanced. I don't know. Well, I wanted to say in addition to reflection that um, the practice of mindfulness as inclusion of all experiences is a kind of good bottom line. So the experience of failure is in a certain way, just another experience. like, And that can be a place where things start to feel much more fluid because experience is constantly changing, so we don't get as fixated. We can observe how our mind like goes to anything that feels like failure or unsafety or hatred or defining people by the problem that they caused for me, not by whatever other beautiful sides might exist for them in balancing our mind. So you can study what your mind's habits are. And sometimes the things that exclude you may not be completely fair. Like you're also saying there's a mechanism by which people's academic performance is rated and it's probably peer-reviewed and all this stuff. But there is cronyism, unfairness, arbitrariness, timing. Somebody was in the right place at the right time. They got a better book review. They could book review was given to a reviewer who likes that stuff or hates that stuff. You know, I mean, it's rife with contradictions. So very often understanding that there's a systemic piece to 
success and failure, that it may be partially an accurate mechanism and partly it's just not perfect. And finding space for yourself in that, if that's what's happened. And sometimes things really don't work. Like sometimes we really wanted something and it really was not available and we have to do something different and we make carry that for our life. But you don't have to say it's all lemonade. Like we're invited to understand suffering as suffering. So the mechanism produces some refinement but also produces suffering, right? That's a noble truth right in there. <laughs> Thanks. Um, the gentleman's uh, questions or comments over there kind of prompted another question for me. Um, in starting the practice, you know, I, I've understood that we need to learn that kind of everything changes, you know, you're personally, and the, the, the practices, you know, just inwardly, if you, your thoughts and your feelings change, and that's something you kind of learn to accept. And I'm just wondering if sometimes when we interact with other people and they do things that we either don't like and we want to put them in a different category. Uh, they say something that might be offensive to us um, and, and, and we want to exclude them. Um, we tend to forget that, wait a minute, you know, that might change. Um, and, and that kind of understanding sort of, you know, how things change in other people when we relate to them is is a different process or a different practice or a different part of the practice mm -hmm. than understanding that about ourselves. I don't know. I think you're saying the doorway of impermanence is a doorway to wisdom for you. Like you can say that maybe somebody won't change if they keep living in the same neighborhood and only seeing the same friends. But um, somebody I know, their mother was very like narrow-minded person and she started watching Oprah when she was bedridden and then she started to see like all different kinds of people being interesting and it helped her you know she became more open-minded by watching TV you never know what's gonna change somebody's attitudes you know like kind of bodhisattva of daytime TV maybe you know um, but I don't know why you are applying that to yourself. Like, let's say the Buddhist vision of the Buddha's vision of actual reality is, let's say it's it's in harmony with science to the point where you know things are always changing. The com the components of your personality are always changing. We have an influence to create harm or suffering, and one of the things at a deep level that creates suffering is feeling like the self is one's self. The way we see it is, I'm always like this you know, identifying with negative patterns particularly, like I'm feeling really stuck or sticking stuckness on others and making someone into a them, like all the people from Syria who want to come to Europe. They're all like the bad guy to some people, you know, but they're just body workers and doctors and people whose houses got bombed and they need to go somewhere else, you know, but... So I think you're saying something very wise. I mean, I don't know why you're not applying it to yourself. That's all. You're a process like everybody else. Right, right, but I, I, I think there's, a, there's a, in some ways when I think of um, the application to myself, um, it's a little easier, right, in the mm -hmm. sense of, okay, maybe I said something unwise, but, I, you know, so on one level, mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, I, I'm going to change, you know, that, uh, 
that if I'm doing something a little unwise, that's just because it doesn't reflect the real inner me. But when I see someone else doing something unwise, I think I'm much quicker to put a label mm -hmm. on them mm -hmm. and say, you know, and, and maybe be a little less forgiving. I see that all the time. I mean, whether it's people with a little different kind of ideological slant, like you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, you know, some people were commenting on political candidates. And I think sometimes we, we hear people say something and when it's someone else's thing, we're, we, we're a little too quick to sort of put a label on them and put them in a box and just, and, and just um, not necessarily think that that might be something that'll change or their behavior in a slightly different circumstance, even though it strikes us as a certain way of being particularly offensive, is, you know, there might be something else about that person that's going to, you know, make them, you know, two months from now actually um, behave in a way that we actually might want to include. So, um, how long are we supposed to have our Q&A here? I just want to know, like, is it supposed to be over now? Like 8.30? Okay, well, I'll answer this one question and then leave. 8.45, okay, good. I just want to have a sense of time check, not because of your question, but just because I'm, when it passed the six here, I started to think, are we going, is it going too long? So, what if you said something like, um, not I or we, but you notice the tendency of in your mind with a certain kind of event happens that it um, tends to solidify a negative perception of another person. Rather than I do this, just to take a slightly more objective step back from that and say I notice this is happening it sounds like in your question there's a little bit of, a, of an inquiry about whether that process is actually a wholesome one or not. Now let's just say, like, it might be linked to survival. Like, it might be that the person's behavior is someone you don't want to do business with or hang out with, and there is a certain need for self-protection or understanding of what their tendencies are likely to be. Like, that's a legitimate kind thing that you'll let your wisdom know that, you know, this is, doesn't feel right to you. This person doesn't feel like a good character or something. And then say, well, you know, it's coming out of ignorance or their education or their trauma. It's a conditioned phenomena too. And, you know, may they be truly happy. May they change. Something like that. I think you could take it as a practice kind of of dismantling your, your tendency that way. You don't have to take it as a fixed thing. You find it easier to label other people and easier to forgive yourself. Some people might have the opposite pattern, by the way. Easier to take the blame somehow and think I'm the problem in this room, you know. It's like people all over the place have different kinds of responses. I do think, like, back to the question about um, empathy and... I think there's a kind of wise understanding to say that, um, that what we call samsara or the, the diluted part of our life is something that is learned. It's, you know, it's part, of, part of the way our mind works is somewhat unstable and not very good. It's called dukkha. You know, we don't operate in the best way to some extent. That's why we're all here because we suffer. We want to learn a way to accommodate our, the actuality of our life in a way that has some grace or something you know there's so many ways of talking about liberation and that's the boat that everybody's 
in. And some people keep acting it out, and you can see yourself acting it out. Like you might say, I renounce chocolate, you know, and what happens? (laughs) I hear you. You know, or I'm not going to, you know, keep projecting division into this world. And then you find yourself saying something really inappropriate or being mean or, you know. But it really helps to say that non-self-teaching is really a good one. It's kind of like, I learned this somewhere. Like, this happened. This is part of, uh, you know, conditioned mind. It's ignorance, basically, because it's harmful. And see it and say, may I take the necessary steps to renounce this behavior if I need to... What do I need to do to make this happen less often? You know, that's, that's the practice. That's our path. I mean, that's our life as a spiritual person, whatever tradition you're in. I think it's... Um, you've touched on it a little bit, but I guess I'm curious about how do boundaries relate to inclusion, exclusion? Can boundaries or mindful mm. boundaries be in service of inclusion? Or is this, I don't know, I'm curious about the relationship there because it seems to me. Great question. Um, Thank you. So, um, everybody knows the notion of healthy boundaries, kind of. You know, and where does the push to break a boundary in us come from, kind of? I think the meditation practice can show a little bit about that, but also having the concept of a type of internal and external healthy boundary is very important, um, especially, I think, for the practice of equanimity, like, that's my relationship with it. When I practice loving kindness, there was an emphasis on love and oneness and um, not uh, seeing the differentiation as much between the self and the other. And then when equanimity practice came in, at the end of the long period of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy, there was an acknowledgement that I can love you and I may not be able to control you. My love doesn't control you. I, I wish well for you, but you might misbehave. I have my own journey here. You know, I can influence myself much more directly, maybe not completely, but... And it just put each person kind of back in there. So there is some reality or actuality to that, like we each have our own kind of mind stream and our own work to do. So that's sort of how I relate to it. But there's a lot of good understanding psychologically around um, the need for a kind of boundaries and... Even a need for, I mean, the person was talking about the safety of family and the safety of affinity. I'm seeing your um, Rocket's clothing here. And I was, I'm reminded of an um, article that I read in the paper about the Patriots game being watched in Beijing. And some people from New England who didn't even like football went there because they were homesick and they wanted to find anyone from New England who might be in Beijing. And so they watched the football game together because it was a sort of relief for themselves as a person to just be around people that came from the same place. And it may be that, say, my imagination is that um, those people um, just had difficulty facing the daily, not inability to understand or connect through the differences. Like, there's a lot of joy to connect through differences, and sometimes 
the mind can get tired or the misunderstandings pile up and it's nice to be with someone that you feel like sort of gets you. You know, that's really a, a great thing. So I think being in groups of people who are like-minded and maybe have a like background to talk about things that are important or if you feel vulnerable, it's really important to feel safe. You know, all that stuff. It's, it's, it's a real thing. That might not be your question. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it definitely, yeah. I mean, I think, I guess I'm wondering right now if drawing a boundary might be a precursor sometimes to inclusion or whether actually drawing a boundary can be an authentic the most authentic manifestation of what inclusion is possible in a certain relationship or something like that. That makes um, sense. But yeah. I'm just, I was just curious to hear your mm-hmm. reflection, so thanks. Right, what is, the, what is a genuine inclusion? Like, yeah, because there's an aspirational level to let mm-hmm. us include everybody that I think is a great goal that I right. hold and... Um, there's sort of a groundedness I seek when we talk about it that I don't know if that's my rationalization of my own othering or if that's a human thing to recognize or what. Yeah, I would go back to the uh, quotation from Zenju Manual saying like to keep the distinctiveness of identities and also try to take away some of the distortions or bad way that it gets used. But thank you for bringing that um, back. What she said, wasn't it there? Okay, so I think we're close to the end and um, of our talk, and I hope that um, once again, I hope that I haven't um, said anything that felt violating of you guys in any way, um, and that maybe I provoked some thoughts about uh, broad views of Dharma that I also hope that uh, we feel connected in this room as a people who are here because we're looking for liberation of mind and heart uh, through the practice of the Dharma and that that's kind of what defined this community this evening. So may our um, hearts acknowledge each other very deeply. Hearts and minds. and each one's own unique take on all this. Thanks.